You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Be great. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 for a little bit of our time this morning. I'm going to start, we're going to do things a little bit different this morning. I'm going to start by praying and then we'll dive in. So if you bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for your word. Um, I pray, Father, that as we turn to your word and, and begin to study this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. Um, God, the, the Christmas season is here. This is no surprise to you whatsoever. And uh, it is a season where we get to uh, really focus on the coming of your son, Jesus, into this world. And Father, I just ask that you would, that you would help us, um, help us to um, be refreshed in uh, the presence of your spirit as we look to the birth of your son Jesus in the scriptures. We pray God that you would uh, speak to us, challenge us, um, and just reveal more of your heart for us. God, but we trust that you would do that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. All right, so the Christmas season is upon us, right? Uh, two weeks from now, roughly, I think, you know, it's exactly two Sundays from now. Uh, families all over the world are going to be celebrating the birth of Jesus together. And something about the Christmas season, right? It's beautiful in many ways. And I, I look forward to it uh, every year. Uh, you got family gatherings, you got all the lights that go up, you got gift giving and um, different music that you sing, and then all the food. I love the food. Um, it's part of my favorite pieces of. The Christmas season is the different kinds of food that we make and eat during this time. Um, but even more than all those things, uh, I look forward to an annual reminder, right? An annual reminder that God in His uh, sovereign grace and His sovereign mercy, right? That He, what He's done is He condescended from heaven to earth in, in the person of Jesus. Like That excites me more than all the lights and the food and the celebration of the family get-togethers. When I think about the implications of this truth that God condescended from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus to do what? To, to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. He came to uh, ransom sinners and then to transform us into his saints for all of eternity. This is a, it's a massive story. When you think about the birth of Jesus, right? He's God in the flesh. They called him Emmanuel, God with us. He did that through the miraculous conception uh, within a little teenage girl, right? Named the Virgin Mary, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. To me, when you think about all those bits and pieces of the story, it's a story that's filled with awe, it's filled with wonder, it's filled with joy, right? Now we sing about that this morning. And as I thought about the Christmas season um, this last week, and as I was thinking about the, the concept of the, the joy-filled celebration that this time and this season is, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, I, I begin to think about the significance of that story for different kinds of people. And so I kind of, in my mind, I started categorizing because I'm like a spreadsheets Excel guy. And so I'm like putting people in you know, different 
places in the Excel spreadsheet, but I've got two columns in my mind and two groups. You've got this, you, you got, you got one crowd of people who absolutely loves Christmas, okay? And when, I, when I'm talking about these kinds of folks, these are the folks who start decorating their homes before Halloween even gets here. And they're, and they're probably watching Hallmark Christmas movies in July because they, you know, they recorded them last year. Um, you don't have to raise your hand if you're that person, but you can if you'd like to, because it's, it's okay. Um, I don't think you're going to lose any stars on your chart in heaven for any of this, <laughs> okay? Uh, so you got that crowd of people, right? And then on the other side, you got this other crowd of people, and they, they and I've heard it. I, I, like, people will say things like, I hate Christmas, and I'm like, whoa, that seems really offensive. You hate Christmas, so there are some people who would say that, like, I hate Christmas. It's not, that, it's not that they don't celebrate the birth of Jesus, but the more you dig into conversation, you find out that there is a group of people who just kind of hate the season. They hate the cultural construct that it's become, right? They, they absolutely detest, like, the financial strain that it puts on families. Uh, they, they, in their mind, they're longing for something that seems more sustainable and more meaningful. So I'm thinking about these two groups of people, and I'm thinking, man, like, when this season comes along, how do you preach something then that, that is significant uh, and, and meaningful? And then I think if you tease us out a little bit further, I think in, in between those two groups of people, in fact, I think the, this other kind of like subgroup of people um, within those two groups... Um, there, there's people in both those categories that just kind of silently endure the Christmas season, right? Um, there, there's a deep sense of loneliness in them. Uh, maybe uh, for some of those folks, they don't have relatives, they don't have friends that are close to spend the holidays with. Um, and yet there's others who have plenty of relatives and friends to spend time with during the Christmas season, but the level of conflict and the level of dysfunction in those relationships can cause a real deep sense of loneliness, um, maybe the kind that you would feel where you feel completely alone even though you're in a big crowd, right? So I think in this season, I think that the, the, the holiday season, so to speak, the Christmas season has a tendency to, to bring some of these things out in people. And as I was thinking about people and thinking about the text and thinking about the season that we're in, Honestly, as I was praying my way through it, I was kind of admiring um, God's handiwork in the complexity of, of his creativity of humans. You just think about it that way. As I was admiring God's creativity and his complexity in the creation of humanity, I got to thinking about the, the implications of Jesus coming to this earth, um, not only as our sacrificial savior, uh, but also as our perfect high priest and our eternal king. Think about those. Like, wh what do you think of when you think about Jesus as our sacrificial savior, our perfect high priest, and our eternal king? Like what images come to your mind when, when you think about him that way, right? You think about Jesus as your savior, your priest, and your king. What comes to mind? My plan over the next couple of weeks um, is I hope to help us to think deeply about the implications of Jesus in these three ways. 
Savior, Priest, and King. Um, And here's the thing. I think Jesus as our sacrificial Savior, that's going to... That theme, that title is going to undoubtedly just kind of salt and pepper or season um, our times together in the scriptures. Like that, you, you can't get away from that um, aspect of who Jesus is as you study the Bible. Unless you intentionally want to ignore the main thread of redemption that finds its way all the way through, right? So that's going to intentionally um, just kind of salt and pepper our times together. And next week, my plan is to uh, take a look at what it means for Jesus to be our perfect high priest. This week, I want us to focus a bit on what it means for Jesus to be our eternal king. So if you focus in on that and kind of center in on the fact that Jesus is your eternal king, right? Before I go any further with it, what I want you to do is I want you to pause... And I want you to think about the one thing, or maybe two things, or maybe, it's, maybe it feels like it's a whole backpack full of things that you've been walking through, struggling with, facing down, the mountain you're trying to climb up. It could be a financial issue, relational issue, sin issue, an emotional issue, physical. I mean, I, I don't know what every one of you is walking through Um, but maybe make a mental note of what that one thing is that thing that area of your life where you're like god i don't know if you've really paid attention to this or if you see me over here uh, walking through this thing it could be like i said maybe it's a sin issue that's been in your life since you were a wee little child or, or an emotional wound or not sure what that is for you, but I think there's a place in every one of our lives where at some point we start going, God, are you, are you going to come through in that area? Like, is this going to change? Um, or have you even noticed? Um, where are you in the midst of that? Right? That it's asking God those kinds of questions. And those are scary questions to ask. I get that too. Um, but I just wonder what that thing is or that backpack full of things is for you. Um, and I want you to, to kind of have a, a mindfulness of that and then kind of set that aside as we do our study and see what God would do maybe in that area, in that backpack full of stuff or cup full of things, whatever it may be. You think about Jesus being your eternal king. What image comes to mind? Uh, when I think about Jesus as our eternal king, I kind of start thinking about things like thrones, Crowns, royal robes, giant castles, you know, with big hallways, um, you know, big tables full of food. You got a pig, probably, and a cow, and they've all been roasted up, and the king and all his people are feasting. I think about massive military conquests, too. You know, if you've seen some movies, where it seems like the king is now leading the armies into battle. Those are some of the images that come to my mind when I think about Jesus as our eternal king. I see those images, and then somewhere in the middle of all that, for some reason I start thinking about politics, and then my whole day gets ruined. (laughs) 
Seriously, it's true that Jesus was born to be our eternal king. And the question is this, where do you see that in the the biblical account of the birth of Jesus? Uh, What kind of adventure could we have if we were able to trace that theme throughout Israel's history? What bearing or what significance would that have on our lives in this season if we could see Jesus this way? So we're going to take a bit of a journey. Start in Luke 1, uh, in verses 30 and 33. In, in these verses, um, an angel visits Mary, right? Probably familiar with the story if you're familiar with the Christmas season. But an angel visits Mary, and he declares that she's about to get pregnant, and that she's about to have a baby, and that her baby's going to be the eternal king that everybody's been looking forward to since the beginning of time, right? Like the long-awaited king of eternity is about to enter the world through a young woman who's not yet married and she's still a virgin how else would the eternal king choose to enter the world now personally i can think of so many seemingly better ways to uh make that entrance i'm not god obviously it's probably a good thing (laughs) I think I would have done things a lot different. God, though, he chooses to make his entrance in this way. Look, look at what the angel says to Mary, beginning in verse 30. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. When I think about birth announcements, my wife and I have seven kids, and we have uh, three grandbabies, and then we just received an announcement a couple days ago that we have a fourth grandbaby on the way, which you're probably going to have to strike that from the public record, because it's probably supposed to be a secret. Well, it was supposed to be a secret for two days, and then our oldest daughter couldn't keep the secret, so she told everybody, at least in our group chat. Anyways, we got this announcement. We're going to have a grandbaby on the way, right? And for us now, for Christy and I, it's like, wow, that's exciting. Yes, because we just get to spoil the baby and then send them back, right? Um, but I remember what it was like when, <laughs> when we first started going, hey, you're pregnant. Oh, you're pregnant again. Oh, you're pregnant again. You you get those announcements, and on one side it can be really exciting, on the other side it can be really scary too. Um, birth can be <laughs> full of a lot of pain, number one, right? Um, and if you look throughout the scriptures, uh, there are, are tons of stories about the pain of birth and infertility and the loss of children. So, so, the, so the whole concept is exciting, it can be scary too start thinking about like how prepared you are to raise a kid uh, start thinking about whether or not you're able to handle the pain of giving birth um, crying baby in the middle of the night not to mention the middle school and high school years those are interesting i don't think that's really what was going to be scary for mary though um, when, when i imagine this conversation you know, I, I can feel her fear for sure um but I mean, you got to think about it. I mean, she just has an angel, the Lord, just show up. Uh, that alone is, is kind of, I mean, I've never talked to an angel. Anybody else ever talked to an angel? 
I, no, I just, that could be a very scary moment. Angel walks in the room, the whole room lights up, and he's like, yo, I'm here to speak to you from God. Oh, what did I do wrong? <laughs> I don't know. But she was afraid, and then the angel dissolves her fear. But, but even despite her fear, I can, I, I can feel her wonder and her awe of what God is about to do, okay? It's not just that she's uh, uh, going to miraculously have a baby. It's not just that. that. That's to undersell the story by a million miles, okay? She, she's about to give birth to the promised Savior of the world, the King of Eternity who has been promised to Israel for centuries. Centuries. God is literally going to give Mary's son, his own son, God's son, he's going to give him the throne of his father, David. He also says that Jesus is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. <coughs> That's verses 32 and 33. But I would, just, I would just give you an encouragement right here, right now, next to verses 32 and 33. Take your pen. It's okay to write in your Bible. It's not defacing the Bible. You can write Psalm 110. You could write 2 Samuel 6 and 7. It's kind of funny. You can write Genesis 14. Uh, you could also write the name Isaiah and the name Jeremiah. Pretty soon you can write all of the books of the Bible in here. <laughs> it's... The thought of this, though, if you can understand the magnitude and the vastness of what's happening right here in this moment, knock your socks off and leave you speechless on your face before the King of Kings. The thought of this from Mary, it must have absolutely blown her mind. It's not just that her baby Jesus is going to be the Savior King. It's that her baby is going to be the fulfillment, the fulfillment of centuries of historical promises from God to Israel. I mean, the, the promise of the eternal king, Jesus, it's as old as Abraham. And in fact, it's interesting because that's exactly where Mary goes. It's exactly what she remembers when she makes a visit to her cousin Elizabeth uh, a little while later. If you skip forward to verses 50 through 55, you're going to see here how Mary remembers God's promise to Abraham. She starts taking this mental, historical journey in her mind. And in these verses, Mary, what's she doing? She's singing a song of praise, okay? The song of praise and, and magnification to God for bringing Jesus, the eternal king, into this world through her. No, notice her words of her song in verses 50 through 55. She says, starting in verse 50, and in his mercy, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. I love that phrase. You know why? Because you know what God is doing? He's like, he's flexing. He's fl he's, does anybody else get this? Am I the only one? Like, y'all look like you're dead. <laughs> Come on. God is flexing. He's shown the strength of his arm. Oh, I don't know. I love it. He's, what, how did he do it? He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. How did he flex his arm? He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's victorious, right? He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich, the people who are like, yeah, I got it together, I'm good, sent them away. He's flexed his arm in these ways. He's helped his servant Israel. Now catch this, in remembrance, not like God has a problem forgetting things, it's not that, in remembrance 
of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Do you know what this word forever in the Greek, do you know what it means? You guys are on target. Really good. You know what it doesn't mean? (laughs) Right, it doesn't mean not forever. Right, it doesn't mean that God's only uh, doing this, like this promise was only for the next 10 years, or the next generation, or or, or maybe the next. What it means is it's to, 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 to Abraham's offspring forever for all of eternity. And we just, we miss those things, right? We start thinking, well, that was God's promises to them. I wonder what God's promises are for me. I'm going to go look up things that he says in God's word that makes my heart feel fuzzy wuzzy, and I'm going to run with that, right? No. Like this is to Abraham, to his offspring forever. When you're reading this, okay, I think it's easy to hear a gratitude in Mary's words, right? You you can hear her thankfulness, her gratitude. She's trying to magnify God for for what he's doing. But what I think is hard for us, as you try to bridge the gap from then until now, is it's hard to understand the depth of her gratitude. I think until you hear her final words there. If you hear her final words and you look at that again, verses 54 and 55, where she recognizes that, that what is about to happen What's about to happen in her miraculous conception, her virgin birth, this is none other than once again the fulfillment of God's promised mercy to Abraham and his offspring forever. When you're looking at the story here, you have to remember that not only has the angel himself invoked the name of Mary's great ancestor, who was that? King David, right? So we saw the angel bring that up. Uh, And then now, as Mary's singing this song, she's remembering what? The covenant promises to another great ancestor. And that's none other than this great patriarch, Abraham. And she's been hearing about Abraham ever since she was able to walk and talk, right? She's been going to kids' church every Sunday, in fact, probably every day, because they, they did this stuff every day back then, right? She's been hearing about Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just pray, right? She's been singing that song ever since she was old enough to sing it, so to speak. I mean, they, they passed on, in, in their day, they would pass on the, the, the history of the Bible, the history of redemption through songs, which in Psalms, didn't I say 110? I did, didn't I? Okay, yeah. Songs. And, and then they, they would verbally share stories. She's grown up on this. And now she realizes that all of those covenant promises throughout history to, to men like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and all those covenants that all kind of build on each other are coming together inside of her. It's massive, crazy. I think whatever fear, anxiety, or stress that young Mary might have been feeling in that moment, the knowledge that thousands of years of promises were coming true inside her womb must have been an unreal experience. Like, what what if you and I could somehow feel that same sense of awe right now in the face of Whatever mountain is in front of you or whatever backpack full of stuff you're carrying around or 
whatever that one issue was that I asked you to think about, if you could feel that same sense of awe. Imagine it. That sense of awe, thousands of years of ups and downs as a nation, hanging on this singular promise of an eternal king that's going to come into reality right now, and it's happening in the womb of a young, unmarried virgin. It's a teenage girl. The sense of awe of that plan coming to fruition right now as you face whatever you're facing. Whatever stress, whatever doubt, whatever weakness, whatever sin. The king of eternity is about to make his entrance after thousands of years of promises. Through a young, unmarried virgin girl. It makes me wonder what all the people in town were saying. It would have been interesting. I wish they had newspapers and social media back then, but they didn't. Okay. He didn't. But Luke does tell us about this little old man named Zechariah and something Zechariah says about this taking place. Look with me at verses 68 through 75. In, this, in these short verses here, Zechariah foretells the coming of the Savior King is what he does. And there's a context for these verses. So you've got to get the context in your mind real quick. Okay? Um, what he's really doing here is he's giving a prophecy about his own son, who is none other than the great John the Baptist, right? The forerunner. You know what a forerunner is, right? Not a car that hit me 20-some years ago, which is true. That's the kind of car that it was. It, 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 the forerunner. It's the guy that comes in. And he's like, yo, the key is here. Everybody bow down. It's that guy. Uh, he's the guy that comes in loudly. This is John the Baptist, okay? He's, he eats locusts and wild honey and lives in the trees and has wild hair. I'm pretty sure. Um, that's, that's who's going to be the forerunner, okay? And Zechariah is his daddy-o. And Zechariah is, is, is about to give a prophecy about his own son, John the Baptist. But before he does that, he begins in verses 68 through 75, and he talks about the coming king first. Starting in verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Can I make another note really fast? Psalm 110 fits really good at the end of verses 74 and 75 once again. It's, it's amazing when this all comes together. Here's another important note, note to make. Another important note to make here is that Zechariah has been unable to speak for roughly nine months. Roughly nine months. He ain't spoke a word because he doubted. He doubted that God could overcome the infertility that he and Elizabeth had been struggling with for so long. When God came to him and said, hey, y'all are going to have a baby. He was like, are you crazy? You know how old my wife is? Hello. That was basically his answer. And the angel was like, oh, you're, you're, I came here from God, and you're going to doubt what he's saying. Okay, well, your lips are sealed. 
Nine months of not saying nothing. And the first words out of Zechariah's mouth after not speaking for nine months are the words of the prophecy we just read. Now, I don't know about you. I am not entirely confident that my first words <laughs> would have been so God-centered after being unable to speak for so long due to my own disbelief. I would hope so. I would hope that God would use those nine months to deal with my disbelief, and maybe that would be the first words, but it's hard for me to comprehend that uh, that's where I would land. Zechariah prophesies. And what he says about the baby Jesus who's about to be born really once again points us backwards to thousands of years of historical promise and promises. Promises and prophecies. Uh, think about it, okay? Um, basically, what, what's happening here is he's building a picture. Okay? Here, here's what he says. He, he recognizes that Jesus is about to be born to the house of his servant David, right? Uh, in verse 69. And then he recognizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies that were spoke by the mouth of his, whose God's holy prophets from of old. Verse 70. And then he also recognizes that Jesus is the mercy promised to our fathers, verse 72. He is and always was the point of his holy covenant, verse 72 once again. He is the oath that he, God, swore to our father Abraham, verse 73. And the reason for all of this is that God desires for his people to what? To be delivered from the hand of our enemies so that we might serve him, who? The eternal king, how? Without fear. How else? In holiness. How else? In righteousness. For how long? Before him all our days. It's almost a literal word for word. Those last few portions, the 74 and 70, it's almost word for word, Psalm 110. That's why I keep referencing that. We're going to go there here in a little bit, just so you know. Um, I want to sear it into your memory. That's why I keep repeating it and bringing it up. But here... For our sake, right now, with everything we're looking at, there's so much rich historical meaning, okay? There's so much imagery in, in every word that Zechariah uses here. You could, you could build a, a teaching series for the next 10 weeks on, on the things he's just said here. It, what, it, what it's like is it's like a massive collage. You ever seen one of those like, Facebook collages where it throws a bunch of your like, favorite pictures from the year together and it flashes in front of your face, kind of like a short movie? That's what Zechariah is doing. He's building a massive collage of deeply meaningful images, and it's meant to point thousands of years of history to one pinnacle moment. That one pinnacle moment is the birth of Jesus. So imagine the picture with me really briefly. King David, right? Remember King David? He's the, the, the little shepherd boy turned like famous king, right? He killed a giant with a, a slingshot. <coughs> He ruled the kingdom with wisdom and favor, but then he also failed epically as a husband and a father, right? So he's got, got David is in the collage. You got prophets, right? When you visualize prophets, they, they constantly did and said some of the most shocking things as they warned all of Israel and called Israel to repent and believe in the coming Christ, right? So you got this group of prophets, wild, crazy hair, standing with their hands up in the air, right? Um, I imagine they all had big beards. I think they probably did. So you got prophets and you got David. Um, and then you got the covenant promises to Abraham, right? And there's, and there's, there's a few different ones, but, but one of the main ones with Abraham is as he's leaving his hometown, he has no idea where he's going to go, right? 
Uh, there's one there. there. There's another one at, right after he uh, goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? Um, and, and then the, the ram is provided. Um, there, there's a piece of covenant agreement there where God comes and speaks to him. And basically the covenant with Abraham, though, is, hey, you go to a place where you know not where, long away from your hometown, away from your family, and I'm going to give you a bunch of kids, and, uh, and, and the nations are going to be blessed by you. And if anybody comes and tries to curse you or, or, or pick on you, a cursed are they going to be type of language, right? So there's this covenant agreement, like, and, you, and your, your family is going to, out of you is going to come the entire nation, right? The, the entire world, so to speak. So that, that's Abraham. But, but really, when you think about Abraham, too, you got that picture of Abraham, right? Dude has problems, jumps in bed with his wife's maidservant, number one. Number two, lies to his enemies about the identity of his wife a couple times, so the dude ain't perfect. Problem is we make heroes out of biblical characters, and there's really only one hero. Um, the bad things we see in some of the best people in the scriptures are still supposed to point us to Jesus. All of this history, according to Zechariah, okay, that, that's all in the collage. And it's meant to help us surrender to Jesus as our eternal king. Why? Again, so that we might serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, before him all our days. Jesus. Once again, he makes his entrance through the womb of this unmarried virgin teenage girl. Why? So he might walk the journey of the cross to die in our place, to leave the tomb empty, to give us one more promise, eternity when he returns. That's what Jesus does. So the eternal king dies, right? He dies. He's born in this season, but he's born to die on purpose so that we can serve him freely without the shackles of Satan's sin and death weighing us down. And all of this, like everything I'm saying here, has been spoken about for thousands of years throughout Israel's history. Now, there's, for some of you, there's got to be some small part of you that's got to be saying, okay, you keep saying that, show it to me, right? There'll be some of you that's like, I want to see that, I want to I hear that, I want to I I know what that centuries of talk was like. So let's take a look at it. 2 Samuel 7, turn there with me. 2 Samuel 7, you see God's promise to David about the eternal king. I want to make this note too. If, if you happen to get a hold of my notes from this sermon, uh, you'll notice there is, a, um, there is a, a footnote that would take you to a message by D.A. Carson. And I, I want to say that his message and his work on some of this was so helpful to me. Um, so you might be interested in that if you can get a hold of those notes in your email. I think it comes to most people in the email. So 2 Samuel 7, I don't want to waste any more time. Got to move. Um, what you have here is God's promise to David about the eternal king, right? Um, but to get the context, you have to look at 2 Samuel 6 for a minute. Because in 2 Samuel 6, what happens is the priests of Israel bring the Ark of the Covenant. You know what the Ark of the Covenant is, right? It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's got Ten Commandments, got a rod, got some other stuff in it, you know. 
uh, Slark of the Covenant. It's basically a visual reminder of God's redemptive promises to Jerusalem, and then that, then, or to, to, to the Israelites, right? And it, what's happening is that Ark of Covenant, or Ark of Promise, you could call it, it's on its way to Jerusalem, and the priests are carrying it. Now, there's an interesting, like, sidewinder part of the story where David's like, don't bring that up to my place, okay? Take it somewhere else. I mean, somebody dies because they offer unholy worship, yada, yada. There's a lot going on. Uh, at some point, David finally relents. He's like, okay, bring the ark over here. And that's where you get the famous story where, where David's dancing in his underwear. Have you ever heard that story? You probably didn't know that was there. Maybe, maybe some of you did know that was, yeah. I mean, there, there's a song in kids' ministry where it says, I'll become even more undignified than this. And no, in all my years of doing kids' ministry and youth ministry, nobody danced in their underwear. I'm just telling you. Just letting you know. David, though, did. And his wife got really mad at him for it because there was a bunch of women there watching. That's seriously what takes place in the story. He's undignified because he's, he's thankful. He's happy about the, the ark coming to the city. And what happens is David starts dreaming. He can't help but to dream about building a temple for God to live in right here on earth. Now, there's so many beautiful implications in all of that that we don't have time for, right? We can recognize that King David did have some really good desires to serve God by building them a temple. And so, so God comes to David by the mouth of the prophet Nathan, okay? And what happens is God makes a covenant, or he makes an agreement with David. And, and basically that agreement, like I said earlier, covenants built on covenants built on covenants. Agreements built on agreements built on agreements all throughout. It's God's revelation through those covenants and agreements with his people all throughout the Bible. Okay, All he's doing is self-revelation. And compounding each one, it's not like, the, oh, there was this dispensation for this one and whatever. Okay, they just added on each other. It's God revealing himself. And he comes to David, and this is exactly what he does. He proves in all of those covenants that he is the hero of the story because he's the only one who can keep the covenant. None of us can keep it. So God makes it possible that it be kept by his son Jesus. And in 2 Samuel 7, he says this in verses 12 through 16. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. Okay, my family lineage. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, which means, David, you're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, now he's not talking about Jesus because Jesus committed no iniquity, right? Okay. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Interesting because Saul was a very bad king. Everybody say bad king. Okay, very good. David was a good king. Say good king. Okay, now somebody say this. Jesus was a better king. Very good. So we get, that's Biblical Theology 101, okay? <laughs> he says, I, I'm not, my, my, my steadfast love is not going to depart from your son, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. But here you go. Here's the kicker. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let me ask you again, what's the meaning of the Greek word forever? forever. Very good. Very, very simply stated, what's happening here is someday David's going to die, Okay. His own son Solomon, whom uh, he had with a woman named Bathsheba. Got uh, bells going off in your head yet? Ding, ding, ding. Solomon, uh, son of David and Bathsheba. He's the one that's going to build the temple long in the future. God's going to place someone on King David's throne 
further in the future from King David's family, right? And he's going to be the eternal king of God's eternal kingdom. So that's Jesus. We know this, right? We're tracking. But can you imagine being King David? Just like get out of what you already know and get yourself in King David's shoes. You have no clue. You're just King David. You know how broken and simple you really are. You especially know that in light of the horrific sin that you just committed against Bathsheba and her first husband, Uriah. You had him killed. You used your power to have sex with her. You know how deep your sin is, and God is standing in front of you through the prophet Nathan and saying, this is what I'm about to do in you and through you. I'm going to establish your throne and your family for all of eternity. At some point, if I'm King David, if you're King David, don't you begin to wonder, what kind of person is God going to put on my throne? What kind of person is going to establish this kingdom forever? You start wondering about the identity of that person, right? What's it going to be like? They may wonder that, like, boy, if I have kids someday, what's my kid going to be like? And, and, and then what's the next gen? What's the great, what's the grandbaby going to be like? What's the great grandbaby going to be like? You start thinking that way. I mean, when we talk about this in my family, we just talk about the old Italian heritage that we have, right? My, my great-grandpa or something like that used to work for the mob or something. You know, he, he, he worked for the character that the Godfather was built on, so we all get into our Italian voices. Yeah, you know what it's like. He was working for him, and it's uh, bada-bing, bada-boom. I imagine David, <laughs> I just imagine David thinking about this, wondering what kind of person is God going to put on a throne, what's it going to be like, and what's happening here. And at some point, David's writing the Psalms, right? He's writing the Psalms. When I realized this, it wrecked me for days, just so you know. He's writing the Psalms, and he's reading the Torah. He's got to be, got to be reading the Bible. He's reading the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? He's reading that. Then he has an epiphany in Psalm 110. So turn to Psalm 110 with me. He realizes that, boy, this person that's going to be on my throne in the future, he's going to be like somebody. And, and, And... if you go and you listen to Carson when he talks about this, and he talks about dictation and how God dictated the Bible and, and did or did not dictate, and listen to Carson on this bit because it's important and, and interesting. I don't have time because I'm at 45 minutes in, so I need to, need to wrap up, right? Um, the moment when, when David realizes this as he's reading Genesis, I think, here's what he writes in Psalm 110, right? Um, Again, I want you to think about this. Uh, it's many years after God promises that king, and David's wondering here. Um, and in Psalm 110, he paints a picture, David does, as inspired by God, right? This is what he's going to be like. Starting in verse 1, it's 1 through 4. Um, here's, here's what he says. The Lord. Uh, you might notice in your Bible that the Lord, the first Lord, is all caps. You might say, why is that important? Well, there's some importance there. Okay. Um, the Lord says to my Lord. You might see the second instance of Lord and go, well, it's not all caps. There's only a capital L. What's the deal there, right? We're going to come back to that in a minute. But the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That sounds like a king to me, right? He's, uh, you know, got his foot on the neck of his crushed enemies. He's victorious. Um, 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord, caps, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I want you to notice, notice how all the language of the first three verses is keenly language, right? Uh, um, God is the Lord. All the capital letters, that's God. And then Jesus is the Lord, uh, and, and it's, it's the, the, the Lord with just the capital L. So the Father, God the Father, is speaking to Jesus. Okay, there, there are some arguments as to whether, was well, this David or is it not? And uh, I'm just going to, without running down the bunny trail, just say, this is God the Father speaking to Jesus. Um, and God is telling Jesus, in David's imagination, right? Because God uses human imagination in the authors of the Bible as he writes. So he's using David's imagination. He's painting pictures about what it's going to be like for Jesus, who's going to rule from the right hand of God's throne in heaven as he rests his feet on the crushed necks of his enemies, kind of like a comfy recliner, right? Um, I think that was Carson's, Don Carson's uh, image, not mine. And his people are going to be free to serve in righteousness forever. Doesn't that sound familiar? Free to serve in righteousness forever. Where do we hear that? We heard that back in Luke, didn't we? Isn't that not exactly what Mary and Zechariah were alluding to in the birth of Jesus, right? Isn't that crazy how you tie all that together? Now, the real shocker here, and I think it's the turn in the entire story, is found in verse 4. God explains that he has promised that his eternal king will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who in the world is Melchizedek? Okay. Who in the world is Melchizedek? Sounds like a priest. There's, there's something going on here. This is where it becomes obvious that David has been studying the book of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, Abraham meets a man named Melchizedek. And when he meets Melchizedek, again, remember how Mary and Zechariah both mentioned Abraham in Luke chapter 1? Uh, here in Genesis 14, what happens in the context is God helps Abraham pull off an absolutely impossible rescue mission for his nephew Lot. Think about that. The, the theme of redemption, the theme of rescue is right before Abraham meets Melchizedek. That should tell you something about the way that God reveals himself throughout Scripture to us. He is the God of redemption, right? And as Abraham is coming back from that big battle, rescuing Lot, he's got all the loot of his victory in tow, and he's met by this mysterious man named Melchizedek. And so Abraham meets him, and he's celebrating God's work of redemptively rescuing his nephew, right? And in verses 18 through 20 of Genesis 14, here's what the text tells us. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God the Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God, Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And what did Abraham do? Gave him a tenth of everything. Now that's fascinating. Um, if you know anything about Old Testament law, Regarding the tithe, the Old Testament law has not been established yet. It won't be established for many years. But this is the only other time that Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament outside of David's reference in Psalm 110. Okay? So, so it for sure seems that David 
is reading Genesis 14 and has an epiphany in Psalm 110 when he's writing that. And he's remembering the promise from God to him. And he's going, what is my heir going to be like? And God gives it to him. How many times have you sat there and asked, God, what's going to happen next? How am I going to get through this? And what's going what's to take place? Wouldn't it be great if God gave you a little tidbit right there in that moment like he gave David? We've probably all been experienced that for moments, right? Where God's like, I can give you a little piece. I'm going to give you the whole picture. In this instance, he lets David know what his future, the future eternal king is going to be like. So notice some things about Melchizedek real quick. He's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. And the city of Salem, according to some scholars, may, catch this, may have been what became Jerusalem later. So how about that to blow your mind, if that's true? If Melchizedek was the king of Salem, right, and, and he's a king, uh, he's also a priest, that should twist you up too, um, if you know anything about priests and kings in the Old Testament and the law. David's heir is going to be an eternal king and a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Again, laws regarding priests and kings have yet to be established in the Mosaic law under Moses. Many years later, before David, but after Abraham and after Melchizedek. You catching the timeline? This dude is a priest and a king. But in the Mosaic law later, there's a separation between the two. A king can't be a priest and a priest can't be a king. And they come from two different family lines. You have Levitical priests and Judaic kings. That's why Jesus comes from the line of Judah, the tribe, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, king. He's also a priest. So for now, I think what you can see, at least right now, is you can see these small shreds of details, right? Deeply woven into the plan that was laid out for our eternal king to make his entrance into this world. It's, it's, it's more massive than you and I could possibly imagine in the 51 minutes I've been talking about it. There's so many details that, that you can't even touch on in 51 minutes. So if I'm going to conclude, I'm going to conclude this way. I want you to be reminded that over the course of a few thousand years, God orchestrated a meeting first between Abraham and Melchizedek. And then many years later, Moses, he's receiving instructions for kings and priests, and he writes them down in somewhere in Exodus through Deuteronomy, right? After he writes Genesis. And then many years later, David receives the promise from God regarding the eternal king. He's going to come from his own bloodline. And then years later after that, he realizes that that eternal king, who has planned from eternity past, is going to be like Melchizedek from Genesis. And then years later, once again, many years later, Mary and Zechariah realize that her baby is going to be this eternal king, promised in the past, planned from eternity. Now let me ask you one last question. Is there anything in your life that this eternal king does not have a handle on? Like, I, I struggle with trusting God through different seasons, different circumstances. It's hard to admit that. I personally, I wasn't raised in a culture of trust anyways, right? Respect is given, trust is earned. And if you burn the trust, you pour it out by the bucket. And to re-earn it, you put it back in by the teaspoon. 
I grew up traveling around in the back of a truck when my mom was trying to figure out whether my, my stepdad was cheating on her or not. I'm jumping out of the back of the truck to go look in windows of houses. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a culture that didn't teach trust. So my point personally is, trusting God's a hard thing for me to do. <laughs> and yet, is there anything in my life that this eternal king does not have a handle on? Like what detail of your life or my life could he actually miss? Like love the Christmas season or hate it, feel the loneliness and the stress of the Christmas season, maybe. But one thing I do know, we do have an eternal king who, who was planned from before the foundations of the world. He was promised throughout centuries of history. He was born in the person of Jesus Christ through this little unmarried virgin teenage girl. This eternal king, he's absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely good, and he can be trusted even, even when you and I fall into those places where we start going, I'm going to judge your trustworthiness based on my trustworthiness. See how crazy that is? I find that that's one of the issues I have sometimes as I look at my own unfaithfulness or the unfaithfulness of others around me, and I wind up somehow translating that on my God. And... Well, here's what I love about him. I know that his shoulders are big enough for that. And I, I think I even told my wife that one day this week, I was like, and we were talking about some things that were heavy and hard. And I remember looking at her and saying, and I, I, I have to preach this Sunday. I have to figure out how to get my mind through this funk and still step up and proclaim something true and believe it. But that's one thing I can't do. Like, I, I can stand in front of you and tell you I struggle to trust, but I could never stand here and proclaim these things to you if in this moment I didn't know it was true. That makes sense? I might walk out of here and walk out the door of the church and go, I don't feel like I trust God right now again, <laughs> whatever, for whatever reason. But I can tell you this, he, he can be trusted. He is good. Uh, even when you don't understand the details of your life and you have a difficult time trusting him, the truth of what we've just studied is that he is our eternal king. And to him, we can surrender all those things. It, surrender doesn't have to do with understanding. There are things you may not understand. It doesn't mean you cannot surrender it. In fact, I think true surrender is saying, I, I don't have this figured out. That's a good place to be. I want to leave us there. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you would come and minister to us now as we close our time together. Thank you for the truth, who you are, what you came to do. Pray, God, that you would come and extend your kingly rule over places of our hearts that need repentance or healing or strengthening. Trust that you will do exactly that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.